Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the life cycle of all kinds of stuff. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And today I'm going to go first and I'm talking about where do reindeer go to get high? (laughs) Tell me more, Sarah. (laughs) So I'm a mushroom lover. I love mushrooms and I find them fascinating. Their place as not quite plant and not really animal on the tree of life really is cool to me. We actually share a common ancestor with mushrooms after like way after plants split off, making them more closely related to us than to plants as far as my general understanding of it is. And you Mm -hmm. can correct me, Emily, if that's right. You're accurate. Totally correct. Cool. I came across a story recently linking Santa Claus with Siberian shamanism, the Amanita muscaria mushroom, and the curious habit of reindeer for getting high. If you didn't right. know, yeah, if you didn't know, a few animals that we know of, we've actually seen them, we've witnessed them, do intentionally get high by using various things in their environments. People have witnessed dolphins playing with pufferfish to get the poison out. Of course, our domestic cats love catnip. Mountain goats have been seen eating coca leaves, which is what cocaine is made from. Wallabies uh, have been caught eating poppies in poppy farms in Australia, because poppies are grown in Australia uh, for medicinal purposes. And of course, the reindeer, like I mentioned, eating poisonous mushrooms and then acting drunk afterwards. And you can actually see YouTube videos of people catching high reindeer. (laughs) Yeah. So it seems to that having a brain with a little bit of higher functioning ability, like uh, a lot of our animal friends do, I mean, they're not, we don't really know, but they have a little bit of higher functioning ability. And the desire to mess with our consciousness and perception is shared not by every, all, by a lot of our animal friends. I'm not going to see every animal friend, but a lot of our animal friends like to get high too or mess with their brains. So mm-hmm. the am- the Amanita, Amanita muscaria is actually my favorite mushroom. So this is why this delighted me so much. And if you aren't familiar with the Amanita muscaria, if I show you a picture, you'd surely remember or have seen it. And I, I'm pretty sure you know what it is, Emily, what it looks like. But it's like it's the mushroom fairies and gnomes sit on and use for tables in pictures. It's the little red mushroom with whitish trim. It looks like toad the mushroom from mario too exactly the amanita grows mainly in the northern hemisphere and was originally native to woodland areas in northern europe but has been accidentally introduced in the southern hemisphere as well it is a symbiotic mushroom with pine and birch trees so it grows in forests the amanita is also known as the fly agaric mushroom but amanita muscaria is a much prettier name than fly agaric or agaric i'm not sure which one it is Mm -hmm. so anyway the mushroom is considered poisonous but deaths from eating it are pretty rare it has to be boiled pretty substantially in order to be edible and 
it's so that it isn't toxic or hallucinogenic. That's the big thing about this mushroom is actually hallucinogenic. The mushroom was used by the native indigenous people of Siberia, as well as the Sami people who are semi-nomadic reindeer herders from what used to be known as Lapland. It's northern Sweden, Finland, and parts of Russia. The mushroom is important culturally and religiously to indigenous peoples of that area. It was used by Siberian shamans to help achieve a trance-like state, and and it is also used recreationally by others. And the ingredient that gets us and our reindeer friends to hallucinate is called muscimol. It is not like our friends, the magic mushroom, which has psilocybin, you know, the one that, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the teenager's get off of cow patties <laughs> the muscle i didn't know that <laughs> yeah it grew that's the most midwestern thing i've ever heard yeah yeah the muscamal uh, according to a website for kids from the university of washington neuroscience for kids says the effects except for the hallucinations are similar to being drunk on alcohol with euphoria, your basal body temperature rises, you have an increased heart rate and you get drowsy. The most common hallucination on the mushroom has been that people report feeling like they're flying. So muscimol is also unlike psilocybin isn't that psilocybin from our magic mushroom friends it actually acts on serotonin in the brain. But instead of serotonin, the muscimol acts on the GABA uh, neurotransmitters in the brain. So it's a different method of action, but still euphoria and hallucination. Mm-hmm. However... This is a warning. The amount of poison in each mushroom cap changes season to season and where it's growing. So please don't poison yourself. Don't listen to this podcast and go, I'm going to go eat a bunch of mushrooms. Don't poison yourself. So you don't know how much hallucinogen you're, how, how much amanita you're getting, how much hallucinogen you're getting. So children are the most likely to be poisoned by eating the mushrooms accidentally or out of curiosity. And the treatment is pretty much the same as medicine poisonings a nice trip to the er to get your stomach pumped and some activated charcoal which is not pleasant by the way so that's just a word or warning don't eat stuff growing on the ground unless you know what you're doing yeah that's, <laughs> that's good advice in general yeah so which brings me to reindeers getting high which is what the purpose of what i was talking about And I'm going to diverge a little bit again. So reindeer in the north have been in Zerv for a long time, seeking out the Amanita, consuming it, and then running around like they're drunk. Apparently, they also make weird noises. They twitch a lot, and they just run around crazy and act like they're drunk. It has been suggested that maybe the ancestor of the people like in Lapland and Siberia who used the mushroom religiously and recreationally saw their reindeer friends having fun and decided to give it a try. Regardless, reindeer brains and ours share the ability to alter our consciousnesses with this mushroom. So I'm talking about reindeers, which of course brings me to Santa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I came across an MB- NPR article that talked to, about how a bi- biology professor at Harvard named Donald Feaster makes an annual lecture every year about how Santa is related to the Amanita muscaria. 
The article didn't get too in-depth, so I went digging, and I found an Atlantic video, which was extremely delightful, called Santa is a Psychedelic Mushroom. And it's by Matthew Salton, and it was really animated and fun. I totally suggest it. It talks about how Sami Shaman at the winter solstice would come around to people's houses with the Amanita mushrooms and help people solve their problems or offer healing. So the Sami Shaman would come to the house, they'd have these mushrooms, they'd go into a trance, and then they'd help people with their problems, like family problems, and then the people would give them a really nice meal. If the families were snowed in, they'd come through the chimneys. The shaman also supposedly dressed up in red and white like the mushroom. And guess how they'd get around, Emily? Reindeer? Yes. Reindeer drawn sleds. So Santa, red and white trim, coming through chimneys, reindeer, flying reindeer. Do you think that part of our Santa mythology might also have some relation to hallucinogenic Amanitas who are flying, quote-unquote, with their shamanic friends, going from house to house, offering the gifts of healing and problem-solving? I mean, it's No, that very detailed coincidence is just that. (laughs) So, obviously, here in the U.S., a large part of the Santa mythology is based on capitalism, having been invented by marketers and made popular by Coca-Cola, But the story itself is also a hybrid based on St. Nicholas and as well as Northern European stories of Sinterklaas. So regionally, that's not that far a hop, skip, and a jump from Lapland shamans and reindeer high as kites from mushrooms coming around to offer us gifts. That's not that far away. That's exactly what that is. (laughs) (laughs) It's the opposite of far away. (laughs) (laughs) So, in conclusion, reindeer go to the woods to find the mushroom to get high. That's where they go. And maybe Santa is a psychedelic mushroom. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, his suit is the colors. Exactly. It's, I mean, the flying... If yes. if, an, if a reindeer gets an ammonita cap stuck on their nose, it's a red-nosed reindeer. Yeah, if you... I was looking at the cap last night, like, really thinking about this. I'm like, oh, my God. Rudolph has a red nose. Is it actually an ammonita? <laughs> I mean, it makes more sense than just, like, a a red light bulb like that, that 60s animation had. <laughs> I... So... <laughs> I, I actually really don't like Christmas uh, for various reasons. And I watched this video and I was like, I love Christmas again. So to all those people who just really don't like Christmas, this is for you. Maybe it'll help. Maybe thinking about Santa, Santa shaman coming with hallucinogenic mushrooms and flying reindeer who are actually high on mushrooms, will make you happier. I don't know. This is for you. <laughs> Merry Mushmas. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Mushmas. I love that. <laughs> exactly. That is excellent. I had no idea about any of that. 
Yeah, and then if you delve a little bit deeper uh, into other people talking about mushrooms, apparently the whole Christian mythos can be um, down to magic, like basically hallucinogens and mushrooms. But I didn't go that far. This this uh, whole thing was like, wow, that's really interesting that you know the Sami shaman were dressed in red and white and they were pulled they were in reindeer led sleds because they were you know they're nomadic semi nomadic reindeer herders amazing yeah. it makes so much more sense than just this weird disjointed myth <laughs> yeah that has nothing to do with anything yeah and speaking of weird disjointed information the topic that I'm going to cover today is Jesus Christ's birthday. Where did oh. Jesus Christ's birthday go? I know, but that's okay. <laughs> I want to hear it. I want to hear. Well, and I'm going to reiterate that Sarah and I don't tell each other what we're doing beforehand. So this this Christmas episode, this Mushmas episode is a surprise to both of us. Merry Mushmas. <laughs> Merry Mushmas to you too. So Jesus Christ was born. Obviously, that happened on December 25th, 1 AD, right? I guess. Nope. <laughs> or at least probably not. So how how did early Christians figure out when Jesus was born? The nativity story is in two different books of the Bible. It's in Luke and it's in Matthew. And... Neither of them give a date. They don't give a year. They don't give a time of year. So uh, there have been a lot of guesses about what day Jesus was born on. Uh, And they didn't really, there wasn't a lot of effort to figure out when Jesus was, like what day Jesus was born, when to celebrate Jesus's birthday until around 200 AD. Cause at the time it was actually considered kind of sacrilegious to celebrate Jesus's birthday, to have everybody celebrate it because emperors and pharaohs were the ones who had national holiday birthdays. So it was sort of seen as blasphemous to have the savior of man treated like a pharaoh or, or an emperor or something like that. It was supposed to be something different. Interesting. So it's an ongoing religious question. They didn't figure it out at 200 AD. Uh, the dates of like May 20th, April 18th, April 19th, May 28th, January 2nd, November 17th, November 20th, March 21st, and March 25th were all dates put forward early on. You'll notice there are no dates in December in that list. <laughs> Around 200 AD, it's they started to assume that Jesus Christ's birthday was on January 6th. And this is due to some creative backdating. It was assumed that the crucifixion was on April 6th of the year and that uh, Jesus died. And it was also assumed that prophets die on the same day as their conception, which is the first one is, you know, a one in 365 shot. The second one, that's a big assumption. Uh, <laughs> so that was an assumption about jesus's death date and then if you backdate it nine months and four weeks then you get january 6th it was also assumed that jesus christ was conceived around march or april due to the assumption that god created the earth 
around March or April. Oh, and okay. He, he would have had to have had Jesus Christ conceived at this on the same day he invented the world just several years later. Uh, so there's a lot of assumptions about this January 6th date. That's how we landed on it. I mean, I say we, but, you know, we as a people. It's it's not the royal we. I, I don't know that, that I uh, follow that logic. <laughs> <laughs> so around 200 AD, they, they're like, okay, January 6th. Now, we don't celebrate it on January 6th, right? But some people do. In the Julian calendar, Jesus' birthday falls on January 6th, still, to this day. There are denominations that observe the Julian calendar, but most uh, Western Christian Christian denominations observe Jesus' birthday on December 25th because they utilize the Gregorian calendar, which is 13 days off from the Julian calendar. It's so weird. I yeah, I don't know why. It's it is what it is. <laughs> uh. So, we've got the January 6th date, we've got the 25th as a date. The first observance of December 25th as Jesus' birthday, written down, was found in a record in Rome in 336 AD. Why move the date from January 6th to December 25th? Okay, there are a few thoughts on this, and the church... Early Christian church was not great about writing down certain thought processes. Like, why move the date? They didn't write this down. They didn't write down when Jesus was born. They didn't write, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of, hey, maybe someone could have written that down. But anyway, they didn't. So from the book, The Golden Bough, which is a 19th century look, it's, it's a compendium of information about all sorts of different religious beliefs, practices, etc. A lot of them pagan, but involve, you know, Christianity and paganism are pretty tightly interwoven. Yes. It was probably the date of celebration of Jesus Christ's birth was probably moved to the 25th to replace the winter solstice and the celebration of the birth of the sun. This is called Mithraism in Persia. It's lots of, lots of different entities celebrate the winter solstice and the shortest day of the year as a way to sort of look forward to the days getting longer and you know spring coming this was already a holiday that involved a fair amount of celebration and like days of celebration so the church just stretched the holiday from the 25th which is close to the winter solstice to the 6th which was the agreed upon date in 200 AD that Jesus was born to fit theology into existing social conventions. Now, this may not be the case as to why it's the 25th. This is There are, have been people who have questioned this. It may not have been an early evangelical tool to try to fit in with existing festivities. And by early, I mean 200 AD. Mm-hmm. But it might have been. A lot of people who disagree with probable historical behaviors tend to disagree with them in order to make whatever group they align with look more intentional looks a little mercenary oh we need more people to participate so we're going to move the day 
not right. this happened on this day because it's an important day. So it reminds me of the Mormons uh, converting people after their death. It's a bit. Yeah, it's hey, this is going to work out for us. And so we're going to try it. So certain people may disagree with stating that if it's the case. Now, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity was a major catalyst for starting to replace pagan holidays. And that happened in 312 AD. And so it does follow that after 312 AD, that sort of as an evangelical tool, replacing pagan holidays started to happen. But the January, the January 6th date was still likely in use in 312 AD. And then the December 25th date started probably right after this. So it does fit in somewhat with a timeline of changing holidays to fit better into existing celebrations so that people are more inclined to participate in your religious movement. Now, that's celebrating the sun. There's also Saturnalia. Woo! <laughs> this begins on or around December 17th. It's a very festive Roman holiday celebrating the god Saturn. Christmas was a serviceable way to replace this holiday, as well as Mithras, which is slightly later in the year, to wedge Christianity into existing social conventions. December 25th is celebrated as the day of Jesus's birth. January 6th is celebrated as the Epiphany. Prior to that, the three weeks prior in December are treated as Advent. So it's three weeks of counting down the days basically until Christmas. And there's observances involved with that, you know, depending on how strictly you follow Catholic Church or it's mostly Catholic Church and probably several Orthodox Church uh, traditions and behaviors. But it's a good way to sort of absorb what would be a month of parties in other cultures and make it a month of parties in your religious observance. So we got Saturnalia. We got the birth of the sun as the move. But let's talk about January 6th now. So I've kind of told the story because we settled on, we, you know, we as a, we as a people settled on January 6th. But in 2008, there was a review of historical astronomy that was done by Dave Reinecke. And it was posited that the star of Bethlehem may have been the planets Venus and Jupiter in close proximity to each other in the sky. And that would make a very bright and stable light similar to a very bright star. This would have happened based on computer modeling in June, June 17th, year 2 BC. There's also another instance of this happening in October of 7 BC. Now both of these dates fall within the year possibility for Christ's birth Although, the obviously, June or October, not December. So, it may have been the case that Jesus was born in June or October. There are arguments for a spring or possibly early summer birthday as well, because in the Nativity story, there's discussion of shepherds watching flocks. And that was more likely to happen in the spring and summer. But then there are also arguments that Judea, where this was all taking place, was likely sufficiently temperate to have year-round shepherding. So that's kind of a, that's a clue that isn't necessarily a, uh, a rock-solid clue. 
my impression was also the Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox churches celebrate Jesus or think Jesus's birthday was in the spring. That's my general understanding of it. I could be wrong. I didn't find evidence for that, but I also don't speak Greek or Russian. And so that evidence may be in Greek or Russian. And I was only using English language sources. So it's the type of thing where being unilingual is a handicap in something that is a multilingual question. Now let's talk about the year Jesus was born. Because it wasn't the first year Anno Domini. It wasn't the first year of our Lord. Uh, So Herod was an, I think he was a king. I don't think he was an emperor of Judea, which is where Jesus was born, presumably. And so Herod was assumed to be alive the year Jesus was born. So there's best guesses that Herod most likely died in the year 4 BC or possibly the year 1 BC. Hmm. Uh, so it is assumed that Jesus Christ and Herod's stories are interconnected specifically because of in the discussion in uh, Luke and Matthew of the slaughter of the innocents so Herod got word that the uh, savior was going to be born and it was going to be a boy and he didn't want that to be, you know, rumble his kingdom. So he's ordered all boys years, ages two and under to be killed. So it was assumed that that would have sort of incorporated Jesus into that killing. Uh, and then what ended up happening is in the story, Jesus's family leaves and goes to Egypt uh, to get away from them. But what that means is Jesus could have been up to two years old by the time the slaughter of the innocents was ordered. And the slaughter of the innocents was ordered in the story at the same time as the visit by the Magi, which are the ones that gave Mm -hmm. him the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So all these things sort of connected, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those three, the Magi showed up the day Jesus was born. They might have shown up up to two years after Jesus was born. That sort of gives some slosh to dating things. But it does mean that Jesus could have been up to two years old by 4 BC. Huh. Now there's also discussion of a census. And that Mary and Joseph were traveling to go be, have, you know, have, have their information taken for the census. By Emperor, Emperor I think it's an Emperor, Quirinius. Mm-hmm. And that's in the Gospel according to Luke. But that would have put Jesus' birth at the year 6 AD. And most scholars assume that that was a mistake. So there's bits and pieces of information that tell us when Jesus was probably born. But there's enough sort of slosh with backdating and very specific, very arcane assumptions about like all prophets die on the day they were conceived and obviously God would have had Jesus conceived on the same day of the year that he created the earth how could he do anything else (laughs) so it's the type of thing where Jesus Christ's birthday was moved for very specific reasons 
most likely to fit into existing celebrations. But it's likely that Jesus Christ's birthday was just forgotten because nobody really wrote it down. And then the date that was accepted was accepted primarily because of utility in getting more people to join Christianity. Yeah, and he was he was um he was poor. His family was poor. I mean, they were they were moving around a lot. His 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 father was just a carpenter, so there would have been no reason to write it down, really. Exactly. And if they did, it would have been baby boy. He would he would have been baby eight years old, maybe yeah. eight years old. What you know, it's the type of thing where the records. I mean, you know, our current records don't necessarily show all the information they could, let alone records from 2,000 years ago plus. Mm -hmm. So that's where Jesus' birthday went. Interesting. So I took a class called the Sociology of Christmas when Mm -hmm. I was in college. It was an interesting class. It was like a really short class. It was one of those classes to beef up my credit so I could graduate. And we talked a lot about Mithras. Mithras was born in a cave. His mother was a virgin. Uh, I'm not sure what is, if he had a father, he may or may not have, but his mother, I think had a husband and the, the, the similarities between their origin and birth stories is really interesting. So I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Mithras. Yeah, that sounds really familiar. Again, an extraordinarily detailed coincidence, Christianity. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like if you create a story that's very similar to an existing story, people might be like, oh, okay, I can get on board with that. And then they do. And then you have more people in your religion. Exactly. It's almost like that. It's almost like that. (laughs) Happy Mushmas, Sarah. You too. And you can find us on wheredoesitpodcast.com and Twitter is wheredoesitpod1 and Instagram at wheredoesitpodcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.